Olaso. This afternoon we return to the beginning of the cycle for the first time. And I'd just like to write, remind you briefly of the kind of the symmetry or the strong parallel between this most initial practice of just the, the preliminary to any type of meditation, settling body, speech, and mind. The parallel between this at the very, very outset, the very first thing. And then, as I, I think I mentioned before, in this classic text, a mind derma of Dujun Limba called the Vajra Essence, when he's way deeply into the text, oh, maybe 80% through, he's way, right towards the end, and he says, okay, here's your practice. Rest your body like a corpse in a charnel ground. Right? Rest your speech in utter effortless silence like the lute on which the strings are cut. And rest your awareness utterly effortlessly indivisible from space. And the pranas will come into the central channel and you'll realize dharmakaya. So would you rather have? you like the hard way or the easy way? But there it is. It's, um, it's a very powerful statement. And the Dalai Lama has made, made a very similar statement. He said, just the practice is just stop doing anything. Just stop doing. Just be present. He said this in his first Dzogchen teachings I ever received from him in California, maybe 10, 15 years ago. He said that just, just releasing all activity. And then he said, but it's not so easy. Yeah. Try to imitate. But it's making a very profound statement, this. I mean, it's pure discovery, because there you are not doing anything at all. So you're clearly not developing anything when you're not doing anything. But it does, it, it does make a very powerful statement about the very nature of our existence here, and especially relevant in this modern world, which is so, I could say, hell-bent on doing doing, doing, constructing, being productive, get something done, increase the GDP, <laughs> succeed, get ahead, do something. Don't just sit there, do something, you know. And there it is, I mean, the kind of the Protestant ethic gone berserk. And here's the counterpoint to that, and that is don't do anything at all. And while the, other underlying, the underlying assumption for the other one is if you're not doing anything, you're completely wasting your time, and you're going nowhere. You're not developing anything. You're just going to remain stagnant, like sitting in a little pool of mud. Here, the suggestion is by, not, by truly not doing anything, and that means not doing the restlessness, the fidgeting, the rumination, the controlling of the breath, and so forth and so on, all the stuff that we habitually and addictively do. That by utterly releasing activity, and then, but without going dull, without falling asleep and so forth, that there's a natural gravitation, so to speak, of the mind towards sanity, the mind towards rikpa, and your whole prana system. I mean, there's a physiological counterpart of subtle physiology, that the whole prana system wants to align itself. It doesn't need you to get in there with a wrench and a screwdriver and a hammer and so forth and fix it all the old-fashioned way with sheer muscle by you know, powerful pranayama techniques and exercises and visualizations and so forth, that all has its place. But there is that statement you know, from Dujum Lingba, formidable, formidable Dzogchen master and teacher, is that just by utterly releasing, then there they go, almost like, you know, like a migrating, migrating animals. They all want to migrate into the center and then come up the center into the heart chakra and into the indestructible bindu 
or essence at the heart, chakra. So it's really as if not only substrate consciousness, but Rigpa itself wants to rise up to meet you. But it's as if we're spending our whole lives just boxing it away, boxing it away. I'm busy. No, no, wait, no, no, I don't have time for that. I'm, I'm, I need to achieve something here. And boxing it away. And so this initial phase, this infirmary, very well practiced, one could say really optimally practiced in the supine position, where you're just not giving any effort at all, not any effort to the physical posture, it's just total meltdown. Sets the stage of settling the body, speech, and mind so we're ready to do anything else. But so much we're already starting on that note of just getting out of the way. Stop doing so many of the things by way of body, speech, and mind that we normally do that impede the natural migration of the pranas into the central channel and the migration of the mind to melt and dissolve not only into the substrate consciousness but to melt all the way down, right down to rikpa. So to contextualize this a little bit more broadly and very importantly, because of course shamatha is not a standalone practice. It needs context. Nobody meditates without a lifestyle. And so what kind of lifestyle for shamatha? What kind of lifestyle for spiritual practice in general? And lifestyle means not only what you're doing, but where are you living and who are you engaging with? So rarely, but on occasion, I've been in, I've lived in environments. One just immediately springs to mind because it was such, made such a strong impression on me. Um, where the environment is such that, given the power of the, envir- of the environment, the people you, engage, you, you must engage with, because there they are right in your face, uh, the environment, the location, the people in it, given the strength of that, and given the strength of your own spiritual practice. So if you're a young Tang Rinpoche, then you can have a splendid 18-year retreat in a concentration camp. But he had practiced a lot before he got there, right? He didn't come in as a novice and become a great yogi while he was in the concentration camp. He was already an accomplished yogi and therefore was able to use that time in a marvelously meaningful fashion. But given, given the strength, the versatility, the malleability, the flexibility of your Dharma practice, and given the environment, you may occasionally find yourself in an environment where you can't flourish. It would be nice if you could, and in principle, it's possible, and practically speaking, you can't. A horrendous marriage. If one is in a marriage where these, the spouse, let's imagine, oh, let's go on a limb here and say it's a man, is brutal, abusive, oppressive, uh, and just makes your life miserable. And there's the spouse, there's the woman in that kind of relationship. What kind of chance does she have to develop a, a really nurturing, fulfilling spiritual practice in that context? Maybe zero. In principle, of course, she has a Buddha nature, but no. Meanwhile, in reality, in that kind of relationship, she has to escape. That can happen. It can happen. Sometimes a, fr- a dear friend of mine, his father was so brutal. I mean, really brutal, physically, verbally, drove his wife to suicide that the child just had to escape. He just had to get out of the house. That was it. He could not. He was, he was a teenager, but could not stay in that home with that father. Could not. And not flourish in any possible way. So those are some pretty intense examples. But then we can just more broaden it out. And not everything is that brutal. But in the situation I was in many, many years ago, it wasn't brutal. It was just so draining, so abrasive. 
so not dharma, that where I was in my practice and where this, where this environment was, I thought, I, just, I, I tried it for a couple of months, and I said, there's just no way I can even be happy in this environment. I can't practice in the environment. It's just like, it's like shredding me. It's like just coming in with knives. And even though there was no brutality there, it was just like, ah, I can't handle this. And I couldn't. And then I got out, and it was just fine. One day later, I was fine. Because I just got out of that environment. I was in a much more neutral environment. And then right back into gear and practicing. Right? So there's one of the big choices that happily all of us have. None of us are living in a totalitarian government where the government or anything above us is just forcing us to be in a certain environment. We can choose our environments. We can, we can choose our lifestyle. And so that's one of really one of the biggest choices we ever make. And we continue to make through the course of the life is where shall you live? With whom shall you engage? And what type of activity will you be involved in? And then the big question from a Dharma perspective is where you're living, who you're engaging with, and what type of activity you're involved in. Is this impeding? Is this impeding your spiritual practice? Is it obstructing it? That natural flow of the prana into the central channel, that, you know, that marvelous balancing of the mind, the evolution, the maturation along a spiritual path. Is it blocking you? No matter what you do, is it blocking you? Arguments have been made by the Amish and by yogis here and there in different traditions. Uh, there was a marvelous movie I saw of Chinese, Chinese, it's contemporary, but Chinese Buddhist monks and nuns living out on just almost nothing, living out in the jungle, central China, out in the kind of the jungle, and they pretty much just forage, just find veggies and so forth, and occasionally somebody gives them some rice, but they live on virtually nothing, and living absolutely ascetic lives, but nobody was emaciated or you know, suffering really intensely, but incredible simplicity of life, excellent virtue, excellent ethics. Uh, they were Mayana Buddhists, and so one Westerner went there and interviewed them and so forth. It was something in the clouds, way of the cloud, not way of the white clouds, but something like... Monk's Say again. A monk's white clouds. That's it. Thank, thank you. Marvelous movie, wasn't it? Really, so inspiring. And then when they met that, really, that, the, the, the pinnacle yogi, oh, that was something. That was something. So there it is. So there are people like that. They're not going on a three retreat. They're not going on an eight-week retreat. They have stepped out of modernity. They've just said, thank you. You do what you do, and we'll do what we do. And they've just stepped out. They could be living in the 17th century, the 7th century, the 27th century. Uh, they've just stepped out of the flow uh, because they found the flow was not conducive to their spiritual practice. And as they say, if you're sitting in the middle of, and if you're sitting in the middle of a sewer, don't go with the flow. It's not going to someplace good. So the Amish have drawn a similar conclusion, right? They just step out. If you've if you've seen any films or you know anything about the Amish, it looks like they're living in the 19th century, horse and buggy and long skirts and all of that kind of thing, a very simple lifestyle, as little engagement with modernity and modern tech, technology and all of that as possible. They just look at modernity and say, I don't think so. And they step out. I really resonate with that. I see it. I get it. And so, I mean, that's one option of just stepping out. So again, Lamrimba, my teacher, he just stepped out. He was stepping out for like 30 years. You know, there he was, just you know, living out in nature in a little, a, little, a little primitive cottage with no running water, no electricity, no toilet, no plumbing, nothing at all, four walls and a roof. That was it. 
But wherever one finds oneself, I think that is really one of the most important choices we make. With whom shall we engage? What type of activity, livelihood, way of life shall we involve? And where shall we live? At the very least, to see that it's not impeding us, not blocking us in our practice. If it is, then it can be so frustrating, because you may have a wonderful motivation, excellent discipline, and so forth, and the environment that people are engaging with defeat you. And there you are, you know. And that's, that's kind of sad. So we've seen in awareness of awareness that we come, if we just slip over to that practice just for a second here, that shamatha practice of awareness of awareness, we get there by a process of elimination, right? So I don't need to reiterate that. But it's taking all the shells off, all the Russian dolls off, down to right down to the core. Okay, now, this is what's left when you've left off everything else. And it's just that radiant, luminous knowing of awareness of being aware. And in a similar fashion here, in terms of our way of life, our conduct, people that we engage with, environment, and so forth, all right, at least let that not be, at least let it be neutral, that it doesn't block you. It doesn't block you. As you are flowing, as you're seeking to flow into deeper and deeper dimensions of spiritual practice. So there's that. There's your own conduct, body, speech, and mind. What you, what you simply do, let alone your livelihood, but just what you do with your body, speech, and mind from day to day, and monitoring this with introspection. Of course, of course, introspection is not just something you practice on the cushion. Enormously important in between sessions as we're just out and about. And seeing that, well, come what may, ethics, really, ethics with respect to samadhi is really, at, at, at least just don't do anything that's going to obstruct your cultivation of samadhi, and then beyond that, wisdom and so forth. But samadhi, this extraordinary sanity, that's really the first great big benchmark after ethics. That's the big benchmark. Have you achieved exceptional sanity? Really outstanding gold ribbon or whatever, blue ribbon, gold, gold, gold medal in mental balance, mental well-being. And so at the very least, I mean, there's, this is where nonviolence, nonviolence to oneself and others comes in, that at the very least, just avoid doing anything that's going to hamper you, impede you, block you in cultivating exceptional mental balance. Because it's not worth it. Whatever it is, is it really worth sacrificing your own mental well-being and mental balance for something else? What would that else be? Where you said, this was a good deal. I sacrificed my sanity, but I, I got this done. Hard to imagine, really. For myself, I kind of run out of run out of imagination. So there's that, just the whole conduct. And so one can pretty much define ethics in terms of not doing. It's just don't do anything that obstructs you, that clutters you, blocks you in your practice of cultivating deeper sense of relaxation, stability, and vividness. Just coherence, sanity, samadhi. Get out of the way. Get out of the way. And so we return then to this first practice. And that's really overwhelmingly what we are doing, is just be in a room with other people. OK, not optimal, but not bad, because we're all quiet here. But in your own room, OK, now nothing's happening from the environment that's going to obstruct you. And now just go flat out release into the supine position. OK, now you're not going to be straining your back, straining your knees, having bad posture, and so forth. Now this is a good posture for a corpse. It's good enough for a corpse. It's good enough for me. 
There you are. And then don't let your breathing get in the way by forcing it, by obstructing it, by manipulating it, trying to outsmart it. You know, as, you've, if you, as if you know how to breathe better than your body does. You don't. You know? And let that flow and let it find its own rhythm, its own rhythm. However it works itself out, works out all the kinks that you've thrown into it with your emotions and thoughts and ruminations and so forth. Settle there and then let the, give the mind a break. Rather than, and so that the mind itself is not obstructing you, not getting in the way of your cultivation of extraordinary sanity, not in the way with rumination, not in the way of, of attachments and aversion to the future and the past and so forth. Just let it settle. Just get out of the way. Get out of the way. And let shamatha come and rise up to meet you. And not as something, something like, okay, the goal is coming closer. But really take to heart this, this way of phrasing in Tibetan. What are you doing right now? I am actualizing shamatha. It's not a matter of, of odds of, you know, what are my chances of achieving it? No, right now I'm actualizing it. It's 100% guaranteed I'm doing it right now. I'm succeeding. I'm succeeding. This is it. This is it. And if it's not worth doing in the process, then, and this is really, I think, a general maxim, if the path isn't worth, worthwhile, the fruit isn't worthwhile. Don't you think? If the practice isn't worth engaging in, then whatever fruit the practice is supposed to result in, that's not worth it either. You may as well skip the whole thing. Whereas if, the, if you see that the fruit is in the path, you can take satisfaction in that right there in the moment. This, even if I die in a second with a heart attack that's just waiting for me 10 seconds away, well, this is a great way to finish, being as sane as I can. And then check out. And then you have, that's a fast track to the substrate consciousness. So there it is. In terms of actually wishing to finish accomplishing shamatha, because we're accomplishing shamatha here, but in terms of finishing it, so that at some point you say, I have accomplished shamatha, no longer in process, but the process, this particular train ride is finished, we came to the terminus all off. You know. Everybody get off. This is Finish the shamatha train. Don't hang out. Don't stay in the station. We know it's very luminous and blissful and non-conceptual, but don't stay in the station. Keep on moving. There's the exit. There's the Vipassana exit, Bodhicitta exit. There's the mon- but, you know, scram, you know. You've made it. Hmm. If at some point in your life you decide, okay, this is now the highest priority. I mean, I put it off long enough. Now let's just finish that. And however long it takes, because it's really, really, really worthwhile. And I've just had it with having a dysfunctional mind. Because whatever I'm doing, it's never as good as it could be. Not insofar as the mind is still stressed out, unstable, and dull. Whatever you're going to do, you're not going to be, it's not optimal performance until you've achieved shamatha, finished accomplishing it. So at some point, if you feel, well, now let's just go for it. Like the Buddha Shakyamuni, like Gautama, before he was Buddha, like Gautama. Having done all the preparation, that was a lot of preparation. I mean, number one, many lifetimes, countless lifetimes, whatever. But then that six years of experimentation, six years of really nose to the grindstone, exploring samadhi, finding not an end in itself, exploring pranayama techniques, fasting techniques, undoubtedly did a lot of physical exercise techniques, all kinds of things. Basically exploring, you know, what were the different methods that had been devised that, at that point by these shramanas, by these wandering ascetics, having primed himself, having, by a process, once again, interestingly enough, a process of, of 
elimination, right? A process of elimination. Already tried the, the fat life, you know, luxury and pleasure and all that, and then tried the other life, and not only just being ascetic for the sake of being ascetic, but trying all the different methods and finding, no, they didn't really work out. They did not liberate. And then process of elimination, what was left after he'd spent 29 years exploring the, the life of luxury and six years of ascetic practices with a lot of exploration of other techniques, what hadn't he tried? And there he was at the age of 35 asking himself that question, wondering, okay, now I have to be innovative here. The life of luxury doesn't go anywhere except for aging, sickness, and death. All this ascetic practice just makes you weak and the mind dull then, the mind weak, body weak, mind weak. So now, what haven't I tried? And then the light came on. Ah, <laughs> shamatha. <laughs> I'm sorry, but that's what it was. He said, could it be? Then the thought arose, could the achievement of the first jhana, could that be the way? And then he posed that question to himself, and the answer was, yes, it is. Okay, re-achieve re it, because he'd, he'd wasted himself so much. He lost it temporarily, but he got it back pretty quickly. Achieve shamatha, achieve the full state, the actual state of the first jhana, which is kind of like shamatha with bells on. You know. And then, with that achievement, then he knew that he was right on, he must have intuitively known, he must have had a great certainty that now that he was there, he'd gotten his mind back and truly marvelously serviceable, superbly tuned, he must have had an enormous amount of confidence, just an intuitive certainty. All right. Now I'm poised. And that's when he sat down beneath the Bodhi tree and said, okay, now I'm not moving. I'm not moving until I've achieved what I set out to achieve. And that is liberation, enlightenment, awakening. And of course he did. Right? But he actually had that result. I'm not moving from here. He must have known he was awfully close, that all the pieces were together. And now all he had to do was just sit there and do the practice. Union of shamatha and vipassana. And then he was liberated. So if there comes a point where you, like Gautama, whether or not you feel you can stay in one place and achieve perfect awakening. But rather going into retreat and feeling, I'm in retreat now, I'm going to stay in retreat until I achieve shamatha. Similar resolve, just a very tiny, tiny microcosm of what Gautama resolved to do. At that point, at that point, then you're rather like a surgeon who is going in to perform some very, very delicate surgery. For which then, you don't do that in your garage. You don't do that in the waiting room of a hospital. You do that in a very, very cleansed environment, right? With number one, no distractions, but also really pure, right? All the di disinfectant and all that kind of business. So really it purified all the viruses, the germs, and all of that out. And so now there will be no distraction, no contamination. There's the crucial point. No contamination, because what we're doing here is going to be very precise, has to be done right. We want to do it efficiently. So no distractions and no contamination. And now, okay, let's roll up the sleeves and let's go for it. And likewise, you want something like an operating room, the OR for the great operation of shamatha, to melt your mind into substrate consciousness. This means you don't want to be in a contaminated environment where you just keep on getting poked from outside from parents, from animals, from, from sickness because you don't have clean food, uh, from noise from the environment, and so forth, you want to find the right operating room or contemplative observatory, 
but a place to say, okay, here for the duration. I mean, this is what's been missing. In a nutshell, this is what's been missing for all the people I've been training, and now they're practicing very intensely for five years, some of them, a few of them, going back to the Shamatha project. What's been missing, and now a few of them have finally found it, created it, none of them found it. All of them created it, but created an operating room where it looks now, now, now a few of them can now actually continue, you know, for the duration. But that was missing for about the first four years of the last five years of just always looking for a pre-made, ready-made operating room, and they were not to be found through trial and error. And again, Alma stands as my witness. They're not just waiting for you. You really have to, it seems, you have to create them. And not only have it good for six months and then your visa's shot, or six months and then the landlord says get out, or whatever, but where you can just say, okay, this is it. I'm in the operating room now, and now let's just get, let's go on with it. And having that confidence that in this environment for this time, if you have any companions, they'll not get in your way. At the very least, they don't get in your way. And if they have different worldview and different aspirations, different values, they're going to be quietly thinking what you're doing is kind of a waste of time. Because it's not productive. It's not filling the criteria of productive use of time by their standards. And so they're probably not going to be the best of spiritual friends. Because they're tolerating you being there, but they're not really supporting you unless it's on a string. Okay, okay, you had six months. You ready to come out now? Okay, year. Come on, okay? Year? I mean, I experienced that when I first went off to India. I was actually using my own money that I inher- inherited from my grandparents. And I was off there about, for about, about a year and a half or so. And for me, this was, just, this was life. I mean, not living in India was life, but Dharma was, there was nothing else for the rest of life but Dharma. That was very clear, because there was just nothing else I was interested in. Nothing else had any promise at all. And so I was off in India, and gradually, very slowly, using up. No, I hadn't even, no, I hadn't even gotten any inheritance yet. No, I was just using up money that I'd saved. I sold everything that I had almost, everything I had that I couldn't carry in my back to buy a one-way ticket to India. So I was there. And uh, there for about a year and a half. And I remember my rent was $12 a month. No, that was food and rent. It was $12 a month. So I was using up my, my funds very slowly. But after about a year and a half, they were pretty well gone, or they were going, they were definitely dwindling. And my father, who loved me dearly then, and he loves me dearly now, but he really didn't understand what I was doing. It didn't make any sense to him. Does not compute, does not compute, like zero in the denominator. I can't make any sense of what you're doing there. He, as an act of loving kindness, he said, okay, I think your time in India is up now. Your time is, you know, you've, you had, you know, it's like you had a year and a half. Okay, you've sown your wild oats, you skipped out of college, you dropped your girlfriend, dumped your car. Mm. Okay, I think time's up now. You can come home now. I'll pay for your ticket. Not an option. Not an option. So, if you can have any companions in a committed shamatha retreat, choose them well. Choose those who share your, your values, your passion, your enthusiasm, your dedication to the practice, so that they're at very least not getting in your way. Choose an environment where the noise, the just what's happening in the environment, is not getting in your way. Right? Choose food that doesn't make you sick, so it doesn't get 
in your way. Just a process of elimination. So you can sit quietly or lie down quietly. And with nothing getting in your way and having nothing else to do, then be efficient. Just get the job done. Achieve shamatha. But there's something in the midst of all of that. I'll, I'll end where I started. And there is something really very extraordinary, a hypothesis at work here. And that is if we do, in all of these ways I've just talked about, environment, lifestyle, what we're doing with the mind, the body, and so forth, if we just stop doing everything that gets in the way, then the mind, it's, as it were, really yearns to be sane. Of course, habitually, we're, we're pulled in all different directions to rumination and hedonic pleasures here and so forth and so on. We get bored, or we entertain me, and, and so forth and so on. But that's that sheer habit. But when we release that, then there's this natural gravitation that the, the mind wants to become sane, the mind wants to coalesce, to be composed, to be unified. And it's just modernity and all the stuff that we get involved in that just pulls it apart, the centrif- centrifugal force of modernity. But it's not just modernity. It's been happening for centuries. But get out of the way. Just release yourself. Remove yourself from everything that pulls you apart, that obstructs your practice. And then find how your mind just naturally goes right to its source, substrate consciousness, and then continue to its ultimate ground. So, that was the preamble. Settle your body, speech, and mind in a natural state.
Ramona. So, is there anyone here who has not heard the story of the cat and the elephant? Okay. Okay, that's enough. Everybody else has to hear it. Everybody else has to hear it a second time. It's a very good story. It's from the Buddha himself, and it's very relevant to the earlier comments and this next question that's coming up. <coughs> the theme that the Buddha was addressing, and this is in the Pali Canon, the theme that he was addressing was, what kind of preparation do you need prior to going into solitude in a radically simple way of life with pretty much nothing in the way of hedonic pleasures, just utter simplicity. In other words, nothing holding you back from outside, nothing getting in the way from outside. But now you've gone into nature, you've gone into a little hut someplace, underneath a tree, what have you. What do you need to bring to that situation to make sure that it will be fruitful? Uh, because it can happen, and I know there are a number of cases where this has happened, where individuals will learn about shamatha, for example, and they'll learn the techniques, understand it clearly, know how to do it, save up their money, find a good retreat setting, go into solitude, and within a matter of weeks, crash and burn. Just, and, and just not be able to stand it. And wind up you know, meditating eight hours, six hours, two hours, one hour. I can't even sit on the cushion, and I'm out of here. So what was wrong? Everything, the environment was, was just what you paid for. It was just what you wanted. Everything was good. Nothing from outside. Uh, what was the problem? Well, if you've not, in one, at least one case, the person quite clearly, and, and good motivation, good discipline, good ethics, nothing flaky, but really hadn't learned how to relax. <laughs> you know, hadn't learned how to relax. I don't think he'd really learned how to breathe. And so while there, in this really optimal setting, I mean, just couldn't relax and just would sit on the cushion and just start seizing up like an engine with no, oil, with no oil in it. You'd turn it on, and really quickly, that engine is seizing up. And it would take eight hours to seize up, and then six hours to seize up, and then four and three and two, until couldn't do anything and couldn't even just walk mindfully. That would seize up. In other words, it was total seizure. And yet you say, well, what was wrong? I mean, that's a really nice cottage you got there, and you got good food, and it's quiet, and the people you're contacting with are totally supportive, not just tolerating, but totally supportive. Well, hadn't learned how to relax. Right? So the elephant and the the elephant and the cat. So the, so the Buddha illustrated what one needs to bring to the situation, to some, such solitude, so that it can, it can be all that it can be, so that you can really taste the sweetness of solitude and derive the full benefit of that union of this conducive environment with your practice and derive full benefit, like achieve shamatha, etc., you know, and carry on. And so here's the metaphor, and that is it's a hot, one of those hot, sultry, unbearable days in India. And they had them 2,500 years ago, as they have them now, really a stinker of a day. It's just so hot. And an elephant is sauntering through the jungle. And I don't think elephants sweat. In any case, this elephant was having a really tough day. It was just so unbearably hot. And the elephant is just walking along through the jungle, suffering just, you know, too much hot. And then sees this nice, deep, pool of clear, cool water there in the jungle. 
and sees it. Elephant's eyes light up, and it goes sauntering over to the pool and just plunges right into the pool, right up to its neck. He's right in the middle of the pool, right up to his neck. And it's like, ah, emahu mahasuka. You know, like, whoa, this is just what I wanted, you know? I mean, you got one happy elephant, and it just sits there and got its trunk. You can imagine it. Got its trunk, and while well, he's getting a bath and a shower at the same time, it doesn't get much better than that. You know, it's nice, cool water on a hot day, and just, ah, and really just digging it totally, you know? So, good news for the elephant. Happy story for the elephant. Along comes a cat, and I'm quite sure cats can't sweat. And they do have all that fur. It's the same hot stinker of a day. And the cat is really miserable. And the cat is also sauntering through the jungle, feeling, man, it's a hot day. I really hate this day. And then he sees over yonder. He sees the pool, and he sees the elephant in the pool. And that's one very happy elephant. And the cat goes, meow, and, you know, and heads off to the pool. You know, what's good for the elephant is good for the cat. And the cat jumps into the pool. One difference. The cat's now in the middle of the pool, and it's got only two options. Either it thrashes around on the surface, or it sinks like a stone. It can't rest. It doesn't have the gravitas of the elephant, who's big enough, who's standing on firm ground. He's got relaxation and stability down there. And then he's got the clarity up here. And the cat, unfortunately, can't touch the ground, so it's either thrashing around on the surface, or it's, uh, blah, 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 and you got one dead cat, you know, one drowned cat. And so the Buddha gave this as an analogy. That is, if you're going into solitude, into this cold, tricky of the divorce, or the, how we say, the release, the abandonment of hedonic stimulation, hedonic pleasures, entertainment, all the stuff that we're accustomed to, and you go into deep solitude, really devote yourself full time to nothing other than the cultivation of genuine happiness, ethics, samadhi, and wisdom, then if you're well prepared, then you're like the elephant. And once you're in solitude, you just revel in it. You revel in it. You just can't get enough of it. You just, it's just sheer, you just love it. And that doesn't mean every day is happy. It's just every day is meaningful. And you really want to be there, and you don't want to be anywhere else. But if you're coming in with an insufficiently prepared mind, then when you go into solitude, one of two things will happen. You'll either thrash around on the surface of your mind in excitation, agitation, rumination, OCDD, or once you're exhausted with that, because it really is exhausting, then you'll sink like a stone into laxity, dullness, and fatigue. And those are your two options. You can be either agitated or dull. And that's it. Those are the, those are the only two choices if the mind is not sufficiently prepared. So. It's nice here in this very conducive environment, and also knowing that we only have about a little bit more than two weeks left, uh, to think, oh, this is, it's really great to be in solitude, except for you're not. You know. it's, it, but what, how great it would be if I could just you know, go directly from here into just total solitude and be practicing on my own. And it may very well be if you're sufficiently prepared. Absolutely, yes, it could be. But if the preparation is not sufficient, then you're going to be like that cat and quite frustrated. and then. Unfortunately, you probably will feel a failure. It will, it, it will have a little, rea- a little basis in reality. Is I had everything set up, and I tried to retreat, and I just couldn't. And on a very relative level, you'll feel, well, I failed. And that doesn't feel very good. And it will because you did fail. It wasn't an exaggeration. Now, you didn't fail for life. You're not a loser. We don't need to compound this. But for that retreat, you did not succeed in that retreat, because you couldn't stay in retreat. 
You're either agitated or freezing up in tension or you're just bored and whatever. Well, that's not a successful retreat. So what do you call it? lack of success? Well, that is a failure. So there we are. Let's call a spade a spade. Right? And so if one anticipates at some future time going for some sustained period, six months, a year, life, whatever kind of sentence you give yourself, for just single-pointed devoted practice, very important to be assessing, to taking stock of what are you bringing to solitude. Are you bringing to it an elephant-like mind that's relaxed, that's stable, that's clear? Not that you've achieved shamatha, but what I'm really getting to, and then I'm going to stop, we'll go to questions, and we have a nice one to start with, is what it really boils down to in terms of what you're bringing internally to what may be a pretty optimal setting externally is two out of the five of those internal qualities. The ones I won't talk about right now is the complete release of rumination, that just, you know, go, just don't tolerate it, just release it always. The third, second one I won't talk about now is getting involved, that is, getting involved in a lot of concerns and activities. So they clutter the mind, they contaminate, you know. And then having poor ethics, now that won't do it. So there, so pure ethics, having few activities and concerns, and completely dispensing with obsessive compulsive delusional disorder. Setting those aside, now what are the two, what are the first two in that list of five? It's having few desires, having few desires. So there you are just minding your own business, you're in and out breath, or just watching the events arising in the space of the mind, and you're just there in the present moment. Do you or do you not have few desires to do something else, to be somewhere else, just not this? Not this. You know, do you have few desires? Right? And so and if, you, if you don't have few desires, if you have too many, you will be the cat, because those desires will come up. And you'll try to counteract them with sheer muscle. Oh, a lot of desires are coming up. Well, I'll bear down. I'll add more hours. I, I, will, I will pound this down. I'll discipline this mind. Lots of luck. You know, it's not going to happen, because the desires will get the better sooner or later. Because they don't, with the desires, they don't want to be in the cushion. They don't want to be divorced from hedonic stimulation. And so if there's a lot of desires that you're bringing to retreat, you'll be the cat. You will thrash, on the, thrash around on the surface in excitation and agitation until you get tired. And then you'll either seize up or just be bored. And then say, why am I here? And you won't have a good answer. And then you'll leave. So having few desires, really crucial. And that means cultivating that, cultivating that. And then the other one is, so having few desires for that which you don't have. That's what it boils down to. Having few desires for that which you don't have. That's one half the equation. It's the same coin, but the other side of the coin is contentment. Are you really content? Do you have enough ballast, enough grounding in your practice, enough motivation and so forth, that when you're doing something as unstimulating as watching the sensations of the breath at your nostrils, and you're happy to do that for 8, 10, 12, 14 hours a day. And quite content, really. It's not that just sheer grit, sheer stamina, sheer forbearance and fortitude. But you're actually content. That means there's a little, there's at least some element of sukha. Like, oh boy, as soon as I'm finished with my meal, I get back to the cushion. Bing! You know. So are you content? Are you content in between sessions to have as your entertainment to go for a walk? If you have few desires and contentment, you'll be like the elephant. And if you don't, you'll be like the cat. Okay? There's sometimes things are simple. 
And so I often speak of, you know, when we're not in retreat, this one will be over in a couple of weeks, when we're not in retreat, then insofar as this becomes a priority. If it's not, then it's a different situation. But if this is a priority, really, to you know, develop more and more deeply. To, and again, I, I speak so much often about shamatha, but shamatha is really like a screwdriver. It's like a wrench, a hammer. It's just a tool, right? Very good tool. But it's a tool so that you can bring about irreversible change. And that's madhaka. That's path. That's path. That's why Gautama left home. That's why Milarepa went up in the mountains. That's why all the great yogis in the Buddhist tradition over history, why they've made such enormous, what looked like sacrifices. It wasn't just to go practice dharma. You can do that where you are already. You don't need to go someplace else to practice dharma. You don't need to go someplace else to meditate. You can do that at home. You can do that in a subway. You can do it in an airport. I've done it many times in airports. Not that hard, even in airlines, especially with noise-canceling headphones. You can meditate in airplanes. But marga, path, something irreversible. So what sacrifice is not worth it for that? To bring about irreversible, meaningful, beneficial, virtuous transformation. And basic sanity of shamatha is necessary for that. So that's what shamatha is for. It's for marga. It's for marga. So... That's why the Buddha, when he had the thought arose, could that first jhana, could that be it? The answer was, yeah, that is. So that everything else can be irreversible. Without it, nothing else is ever irreversible. So here's the question. Nice to the point. What is the difference between resting in the substrate consciousness and resting in jhana? Jhana, very good. <coughs> we are bringing together two different systems with different terminology. That is, in the Dzogchen tradition, or Tibetan Buddhism, do they speak of jhana? Sure, they call it jhana, or samdhan in Tibetan. Four jhanas, four absorptions in the formless realm, so that's common. Uh, substrate consciousness, of course, is in the inter-Tibetan tradition. So, but let's, let's just bring this right over into the Theravada tradition. So jhana, this is, this is J-H-A-N-A, so the Theravada, And so, to achieve access to the first jhana, access concentration to the first jhana, that is, as I've been using the, the term achieve shamatha, that's exactly what it is. And this is, we find that same statement made in the Kagyu tradition. Somebody just sent me a, a short text by one of the great karmapas. He said, what, what do we mean by shamatha? Achieving access to the first jhana. Tsongkhapa, absolutely clear. What is shamatha? Access to the first jhana. I have no reason to believe the other traditions in Tibetan Buddhism are different, and this traces back to classical India. And so there you have it, Theravada, access to the first jhana. Okay, let's call that achieving shamatha. Now, once you've achieved shamatha, now st just sticking here, let's say, for example, with mindfulness of breathing. Let's follow that, such a classic Theravada approach to achieving jhana, okay? And so let's imagine you've practicing mindfulness of breathing. You focus on the preliminary sign. Eventually, the acquired sign arises. And eventually, after some time, the counterpart sign arises, the counterpart sign emerging from another whole dimension of existence, the rupadhatu, or form realm. And when that happens, your senses completely have imploded, no experience of the body, total disillusion into the mental, into the mental field, into the substrate. And all that occupies the substrate is that acquired sign, so to speak, breaks apart, and then the counterpart sign appears right where it was. And it's a hundred and a thousand times more subtle. So if anybody tells you, no, it's really bright, they got it wrong, I'm sorry. But if anybody tells you, oh, the acquired sign, when it gets really bright, we'll call that the counterpart sign, there's no basis for that. 
people make up things in the 20th century. I'm, I'm just amazed how creative people have come up with just inventing whole new things in Buddhism and then turning their backs on Buddha Gosa, which is a really bad idea, let alone turning their back on the Pali Canon. So the counterpart sign arises, but it's so incredibly subtle that it kind of, you get a glimpse of it, just a little glimpse, but almost certainly, unless you're you know, exceptionally gifted, you'll get it, you'll achieve shamatha. The five jhana factors will be there. You've achieved shamatha. All the five jhana factors, course investigation, subtle analysis, bliss, uh, sense of well-being, and single-pointed unification of the mind, they're all there. You've got it, right? But that object vanishes. It's so subtle that at first, at first encounter, you're not able to sustain it, almost certainly. So Buddha goes and says, what's it like? Then it's like your, your awareness falls back on its bum. It, it rises to it, engages with, and then, ah, uh, like a little toddler falling back on its bum, right? And what if you've fallen back into the bhavanga? I am saying, I, I, I declare, the bhavanga is the same thing as what in the Dzogchen tradition is called substrate consciousness. Okay? You've heard that before. So there you are, you've not, you're now resting in the bhavanga. Now, two things, one of two things can happen there. I mean, many things can happen, but here are two of them. And that is when you're resting in the bhavanga, somebody answer this question for me and use the terminology that we're familiar with. You're just now, you, you've just had the counterpart sign arise. You connected with it. You've achieved shamatha. But then it's so subtle, you're not able to hold on. You're not able to, and it, it just dissolves right back into the, sub, into the form realm. Dissolves back from whence it came. And so now what's appearing to you? What's appearing to you now that you just kind of slip back on your haunches, so to speak, in the bhavanga? What's appearing to you now? Substrate. Exactly right. So they won't say that because they don't divide bhavanga into bhavanga like that. They, but we do have alaya vijnana, and that's very handy. So alaya is a substrate, vijnana is consciousness. So now we can split the two and say, what is this consciousness conscious of? The substrate, the alaya. So sure, we'll just, just, we'll just go ahead and bring in Dzogchen terminology here into the Theravada. You're slipping into the bhavanga, but now all that appears to you is vacuity. And the nature of the substrate, anybody remember this? This would not be not so easy to remember. But what's the nature of the substrate as such? Unknowing. unknowing. Excellent. 100%. Yeah. Avidya. It's unknowing. It's not delusion. There's nothing confused about it. There's no misapprehension there. But the nature of the substrate is unknowing. Right? So now imagine. It's kind of fun, isn't it? Kind of look ahead, sneak preview. Imagine there you, you're just slipping back into the bhavanga, but what you're attending to is A vacuity. And the nature of the vacuity is unknowing. And you can just stay there. And then you're really not going anywhere at all, right? But you can stay there. That's where your attention is directed, just to that vacuity. And then, especially in the Kagyu tradition, but other traditions as well, they say, uh, don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck there, where all your senses, your five physical senses, have imploded. And now you're just resting in unknowing just focusing on a field of unknowing, a sheer vacuity, just no appearances. Uh, don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck there. But now what's the very savvy Dzogchen response to this? What do you do instead of just gazing into vacuity? What do you do? You turn it back in on itself. You take that substrate consciousness, which can easily... Now think of the the sword and the sheath. It's like, uh-oh, your sword is slipping into the sheath. You're just slipping into a space of just 
flat out unknowing. That's all you wanted after all that work to achieve shamatha? Is now you just put the sword in the sheath? Why don't you just go to bed? It's easier. Get a good night's sleep. The sword goes into the sheath when you fall into deep, dreamless, non-lucid sleep, right? No, you take the sword out of the sheath. And that is rather than just sitting there with your, the sword of your mind inside the sheath of the substrate and not knowing anything, say, ah, now we've had practice of this. We've had practice, right? When we just started the awareness of awareness, what do you do? Withdraw your awareness from all appearances, no object. Right there at the beginning, you're doing a little facsimile of what it's like to have already achieved shamatha and be focusing on the substrate. But now what do you do? Just exactly what James said. Like, ah, it just dawned on me. There's something else happening here other than, more than, the mere absence of appearances, of the, this vacuity of the substrate. There's something else happening. And you turn your awareness in upon itself, and then suddenly the light comes on. And now you are no longer resting in a field of unknowing. You are resting in the very nature of knowing, because the nature of consciousness has two salient qualities. And what are they? Miles. No, I said, just uh, read my lips. Not the substrate consciousness. What are the two salient qualities of consciousness? Not substrate consciousness, not, not that specific. Just consciousness. What defines consciousness as opposed to paperweights and glasses and so forth? Okay, I think you don't quite know. That's fine. It's okay. Um, Durham, what are the two salient defining characteristics of consciousness? Illuminating. What's that? Illuminating. Uh, Illuminating or luminosity, that's luminosity. correct, 50%. Um, and non-conceptuality. Say again? Non-conceptuality. Nope. If, if that were the case, then you'd always be non-conceptual. Or, or um, beyond time, like beyond... Nope. Well, no. Substrate consciousness is not beyond time, and your consciousness right now is not beyond time. So I'm not asking for the defining characteristics of the substrate consciousness, nor of the defining characteristic of Rikpa. But consciousness saturates the coarse mind, psyche. It saturates substrate consciousness. And it's also down there in the, sub, in the rikpa, right? So I'm looking for the defining characteristics of that which is common to all of them. Consciousness, which you're experiencing right now, not later. So what are the defining characteristics of consciousness? This broad category of being aware. What are its two salient characteristics? Luminosity is one. What's the other one? Knowing. Cognizance. That's right. That's right. So once you've achieved shamatha, you're resting in that, you've achieved access to the first jhana. If you're just attending to that sheer vacuity, then you're attending to a field of unknowing. All right. But when then you invert your awareness in upon itself, it dawns on you that there's not just an, a, an absence of appearance, there is a luminosity. And of course, that luminosity is not bright. It has no shape. It has no appearance. It is of the very nature of cognizance, which means knowing and it's of the very nature of luminosity, when you're resting, when you're inverting, your awareness in upon itself, then you are no longer resting in a field of unknowing, the substrate. You're resting in the presence of knowing, which is bright, this brightly shining mind. That's why the Buddha called it, or the Theravada tradition calls that. Bhavasachitta. Bhavasachitta, brightly shining mind. The substrate, the bhavanga. Not because it's just unknowing, good heavens. You never call it some, just a state of unknowing, brightly shining. That's silly. Right. So, so to rest in the bhavanga and invert it in upon itself, then that's, you've, you're resting in a field of luminous knowing with no object, which means 
again, you've just turned on your 12-cylinder Maserati, which is superbly tuned, and you're ready to do something really cool. Start exploring the form realm. Retrieve that counterpart sign and achieve, fully achieve the first jhana, if that's what you want to do. You're all prepared. Good. Call it back. Develop that skill. Develop shamatha all over again, but now in the counterpart sign, and fully achieve the first jhana. That's a possibility. And then you can achieve second jhana, third jhana, fourth jhana. Then you can release objects, go into formless realm, if you like. Or you can practice vipassana, or you can take that superbly tuned mind. And how about just going off and accomplishing the four immeasurables? breaking down all the barriers for each one, and then saying, oh, that was a good aperitif. That was a nice appetizer. How about, how about Maha Karuna? How about the main course of Maha Karuna, Maha Maitri, Maha Mudita, Mahu Beksha? How about Bodhicitta? How about the Feast of Feasts? And bring your shamatha to it so that you realize it, it's irreversible. Gold like Bodhicitta, which happens only when you fuse it with Vipassana when it's supported by Vipassana. If you don't have Vipassana, then it's a little bit, could fall back, could fall back. But let your, your bodhicitta, your effortless, spontaneous, authentic bodhicitta, let that be supported by Vipassana. Then you've got something irreversible. Now you've got marga that doesn't turn back, ever. That's a big term, and it's only four letters. Big term in Buddhism. So to rest in jhana, to rest in jhana. If you have achieved the first jhana, then you are connected. You're in a state called javana. Javana, remember, is activity. In the course mind, it's activity of rumination and thinking, planning, hoping, fearing, and all the activities of the five physical senses. All the activities of the mind are called javana, because you're doing something. You're engaged, right? And then when all the javana go dormant, that's when the bhavanga manifests, right? A state of not doing. It's like deep sleep, dead, or access to the first jhana. When you have achieved, if you decide having achieved access to the first jhana, did you want to go and achieve the full first jhana? Now just bear in mind, in terms of the earmarks, just so you're not tricked by any of the counterfeit money that's going around, which kind of has swamped the market at this point. Really, it's really swamped the market. Uh, people talking about jhana, and boy, man, they just get it wrong. They're kind of like, oh, please don't, please stop, stop. You know, if you've achieved the first jhana, you can remain in samadhi for 24 hours with your senses completely withdrawn. That's Buddha Gosa. So if you have a better authority than Buddha Gosa, do let me know. But he's not just writing on his own authority. He's writing on centuries of experience prior to him. And this is when lots of people were achieving jhana. This is like the first 500 years of the common era. That was big time. That was big. Lots of people were achieving samadhi and multiple jhanas back then. In the Mahayana tradition, the Theravada tradition, the shamatha jhanas were really not uncommon. They became less and less common with this gradual decline of Buddha Dharma as the centuries went by. But that 500-year period, beginning with the common era to, the, to 500, and Buddha Gosa is writing just exactly about that period. So if anybody was poised to know what's it like for those, those people who are fully achieving first, second, third, fourth jhana, etc., he was at the perfect time in history. I mean, the time of the Buddha would be really great. 500 years would be great. But 1,000 years later, people are still achieving jhana. Lots, lots and lots. Hindus, Buddhas, Theravada, Mahayana, a lot of displays of cities as well, paranormal abilities. They were just not uncommon at all. So I think really, once you rely upon Buddha Gosa rather than people dreaming up new stuff in the 21st century and hardly any, when hardly anybody's achieving it, and a major reason people don't achieve it is because they hear these silly things. Like, oh, yeah, 
you know, practice for a couple of months, pick up a jhana, practice for a weekend, that's California style, pick up a jhana or two. So I've said this before, but uh, there is so much counterfeit money out there and just false descriptions. To find correct descriptions is not that hard, but you do need to know where to look. And if you look in the right places, then you can find in Gampopa, for example, disciple of Milarepa. It's hard to find anybody who speaks with greater authority than him for the Kagyut tradition. He makes it very clear when you've achieved shamatha, your senses completely implode. You're not still kind of aware of appearances in the sentry field. If you were, you're still in the desire realm. That's, this is the desire realm. So Gampopa made that very, very clear. Direct disciple of Milarepa. Direct disciple of Marpa. Direct disciple of Naropa. So he speaks with enormous authority for that tradition and an accomplished meditator himself. Gampopa, Jewel Order of Liberation. And then we find similar statements. Dujum Lingba, absolutely clear. Achieve shamatha, senses completely implode. You're resting in the substrate consciousness. No appearances. Tsongkhapa, extremely clear. And he relies upon Asanga, extremely clear. We go to the Theravada tradition, the same, extremely clear. And they're saying, you know, overall, achieve shamatha, four hours, easy, effortless, total implosion, clear, blissful, luminous, non-conceptual. Achieve the actual first jhana, 24 hours, no sweat. And what's the difference there? Is your freedom from the five obscurations, ill will, sensual craving, and so forth, same. Access to the first jhana, full achievement of the first jhana, equally free. But if you fully achieve the first jhana, then your experience, your accomplishment, your, how do you say, the durability or the power of the five jhana factors, coarse investigation, subtle investigation, sense of well-being, bliss, and the unification of mind, they're stronger, they're more robust if you have fully achieved the first jhana than if you achieve just access. Access is good enough, but they're stronger. They worked out more in the gym. If you've achieved the full first jhana, but now if you've achieved the first, the first jhana and you've gotten there by way of mindfulness of breathing with the counterpart sign associated with the breath, with the air element is what it is, then now as you're resting in the first jhana, then you are actively engaged with, you are focused single-pointedly on that nimitta, that counterpart sign that belongs in the form realm. So javana is involved. You are active. You are in a very simple way, but you have a connect, you have a sign. A sign, an imita. This is not shamatha without a sign. This is shamatha with a sign. But the sign is not in the desire realm. The, design, the sign is in the form realm. And your mind is now dwelling in. It's moved into the house of the form realm, and it lives there. Achieve access at the first jhana. You're right on the, on the doorstep, on the threshold. You've gained access to it, but you're not fully in. Right? Achieve the full first jhana, and your mind now is totally absorbed in form realm. You're not experiencing the desire realm at all. And moreover, you're single-pointedly focused on the counterpart sign, and it happens to be the air element, because uh, that's associated with the breath. And so that's not resting in bhavanga. That's not resting in substrate consciousness, because you are focused on, single-pointedly, unified, on this counterpart sign, the nimitta. And you do so also when you've achieved second jhana. It's subtler, but the object is the same. Third jhana, fourth jhana, object is the same. But gradually, as you go from the first, second, third, fourth, then when you move from the first to the second, those elements, the activities of the mind, the javana of coarse investigation and subtle analysis, they, they fall away. In the second jhana, they're not there anymore. You've gone more into just deep calm. 
but you're no longer in the second jhana, you're no longer able to engage in coarse and subtle investigation and analysis. Blissful, yes. Sense of well-being, yes. Single-pointed, you betcha. But you've just lost two of the five jhana factors. Then you go from the second to the third, and what you're doing now, you're on a trajectory of going from coarse to subtle. It's all relative. But relative to the first jhana, the second jhana is more subtle. But now, when you're resting in the, in the second jhana, if you just really want to explore jhanas, okay, then you're saying, okay, now, as I'm resting here in the second jhana, experiencing bliss, experiencing the sense of well-being, of sukha, and experiencing the unification of the mind, what's perturbing? What's we're talking about something really, from our perspective, inconceivably subtle, but agitating, disturbing, coarse. And it's that bliss, that pritti, or in, in Pali, pitti, pitti. That bliss is kind of like agitating. Pleasantly, but it's still agitating. So something's got to go here. I think, okay, you're like on a ship. Throw out bliss. Too coarse. Yo, out goes bliss. And your mind goes suffer and it goes into the third jhana. Third jhana, you have sukha, and you have this unification of mind. And still now, everything being relative, you're sensing, and now, what's, what's disturbing? What's throwing me out of balance? Because the very definition of klesha is that which throws you out of balance. Well, it's not really a klesha, but something still, a bit of perturbation. What's that? It's that doggone experience of well-being. That's a bit disturbing. It's kind of like, eh, out with well-being, out goes well-being. And then you achieve fourth jhana. Fourth jhana out of the five jhana factors, only one's left, and that's single-pointed attention. And now you've moved, of course, suffering, discontent, ancient history. That wasn't there in access, first, second, third jhana, that was not there. But now you've moved, not only is suffering, mental distress, mental dukkha, not only is that ancient history, but even pleasure. There's not even any pleasure. You've come to an ocean unmoved by waves of either pleasure or discomfort. It's complete equanimity. It's just complete equanimity. But now it's said you achieve the perfection of mindfulness. Mindfulness has now come to its full strength. Okay? And just an ocean of calm of equanimity, an inconceivable a peace that transcendeth understanding incredibly peaceful, completely even. And it's this point, we, I told, spoke about, again, the settling of the, of the pranas and so forth. At this point, your whole body-mind system, because of course you're meditating while embodied, it's come to such a state of equilibrium that at this point, breath ceases entirely. Put up a mirror, no breath. What would be going on the, on the brain? That would be interesting. Nobody studied it yet. But no breath. And moreover, how long can you stay in the fourth jhana? Weeks. Weeks. So that would be really quite interesting for the scientific community. To have a person who's not breathing for weeks and then comes out of samadhi and has not had massive, massive brain damage. Because no breath for two weeks, no breath for one hour should do it. Right. So that's a little glimpse of the four jhanas. Now having said all of that, if you go back to Dzogchen, you say, yeah, why are you getting distracted there? Chief Shaman, let's get on with the real business. You know, let's go for it. Let's practice Vipassana. Do something really meaningful. Is the bliss of samadhi different then than the bliss generated by Tumo Kundalini practices? Yeah, good question. It is. It is indeed. Yes. The answer is yes. Um, 
different. The bliss that is generated with dumo, dumo now is this generation of inner heat. Ah, out of time. But so there we get one question, verbose me. Um, dumo is a stage of completion practice. A lot of people do it. I've known some people who are quite accomplished in it. Uh, you can do it without having achieved shamatha, and you can get real results. You can keep yourself really toasty warm on a cold winter day without having achieved shamatha. You know. uh, it's very blissful, also, and it's also toasty warm. And you can, you can, achieve, you can really experience the, the, the heat and the bliss of Dumo without having achieved shamatha. You must have pretty good samadhi. You're not going to be down on stage one or two. But you can, and you can also experience mm, get some of the real benefits of Dumo without having fully accomplished stage of generation, which is the foundation for stage of completion. So it looks like, oh, cool, why don't we just skip Shamatha Vipassana, stage of generation, go directly to Dumo. And you can. A lot of people do. But I think you can predict what I'm about to say. Can you get benefit? Yes. Can you keep toasty warm? Yes. Can you dry off, you know, the sheets that are dunked in ice water? and have steam billow up from your shoulders? Yes, you can. Can you get the full benefit of Dumo? No. It's the same old, same old, what we've been hearing all along for so many other practices. If you've not achieved, if you've not really, yeah, if you've not achieved stage of generation, then you'll not derive the full benefits of stage of completion. There is a sequence there. That's why there's two stages. One is the foundation for the other, like shamatha and vipassana. And so stage of generation, well, that's where the mandala and the mantras and visualization and all of this comes in to prepare your whole prana system, among other things. It has multiple benefits. But one is to tune your whole prana system so that when you do venture into dumo and other stage of completion practices, you'll go all the way. And the culmination of stage of completion is Buddhahood. It's not just keeping warm on a cold day. So the kind of bliss that arises from dumo is related, of course, to the, the pranas coming into the central channel. But the context for that is, number one, if you're really practicing Dhumma authentically, you should really have bodhicitta. You should have some at least understanding or insight of emptiness. You should have good samadhi. Then the bliss that arises from that is the bliss not just of samadhi. Samadhi is done in kindergarten. It's in grade school. This is the bliss of insight into emptiness. It's the bliss of insight of emptiness. The, the reason for practicing Dhumma, the side effect, what's obvious and kind of cool, is generation of extraordinary heat. But what's the point of it is, by way of this pranic practice of dumo, with breathing exercise, visualization, and so forth, all of this is designed to bring this, the, the, the pranas into the central channel in such a way that you realize emptiness. And that's the real point. And realizing emptiness purifies the mind. So the bliss you're experiencing is a bliss from the, the pranas going to the central channel combined with the bliss derived from realization of emptiness. So there you have this terminology, oh, de tong, de tong, de tong zongju, the union of bliss and emptiness. Now that's dumo. It's not just bliss, like sexual bliss or something like that. It's not just the bliss of emptiness. It's the union of bliss, of bliss and emptiness, intimately connected with the, the movement of the prana within the body. Okay? So, it's much, much deeper, and if you're fully qualified, that's just a fast track to enlightenment itself, to Buddhahood itself in one lifetime. But nowadays, as usual, most people are practicing it without having fully achieved the stage of regeneration, without having already stage of, uh, some real realization of emptiness, and of course, need I say it, without having achieved shamatha. So you can get benefit. 
you can heat up, you can impress the scientists, you can see how much heat you generate. Can be beneficial. But it doesn't have the foundation. And that's why Gampopa and Dujum Lingba and Patsangopa and all of these great masters, they speak of a path. You know, it's renunciation, it's shamatha, it's bodhicitta, realization of emptiness. And if you want to follow that route, then stage of generation and then stage of completion, and then you push it all the way through. But if you skip all the earlier ones, you still get warm and toasty and get some bliss. But it's not quite the same. If you want warm and toasty, I would suggest a marshmallow roast by a warm fire on a cold winter day. I mean, that's warm and toasty, and it's, you know, if you like marshmallows. There you are. Oh, yeah. So that's that. Enjoy your evening.